Thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. Good morning, everybody. It is the light to be here this morning. I have been friends with, we call him Uncle Matt, but your pastor Matt for several years and he has been a joy to our family and just a delight to get to know his family as well and Andre and the boys have just been such a gift. So it's, it's amazing to spend this morning with you. Um, I want to start with a quote that I think is <clears throat> really pertinent today because the topic of today is community. How do we share community? What does that mean for us? How do we come together in community? How do we apply? So the two things that I want you to get away from today is the posture of community and the practice of community. But here goes a quote by Chad Bird, a scholar in residence at the, the company organization 1517. He says, here's the thing. Christianity is not about a personal relationship with Jesus. Shocker, right? When I first read this, I was like, oh my goodness, let's pause for a second. But he goes on to say, the phrase has never been found in the Bible, and the whole biblical witness runs contrary to it. Rather, our life with Christ is communal. It's not personal or private or individual. When the scriptures speak of believers... They are part of community, a fellowship of believers. He goes on to say, Christianity is not a solo endeavor, not a private relationship between Jesus and me. As the Lord formed Israel in the Old Testament, as his people forged together into a body by his covenant, so he has formed the church in the New Testament as his people, washed together into a body by baptism. Thank God it is this way, he goes on to say. Heaven forbid that I should have a personal relationship with Jesus, but we all know what would happen, right? <laughs> what would happen? I would end up, in my mind, reshaping Jesus into a strikingly familiar image of myself. Mm. Christianity is about a church relationship with Jesus. Let's pray this morning. Dear Jesus, we're just so grateful uh, for my friends here in the room, we're so thankful that uh, you have given us this opportunity to share life, to share your story and your narrative with each other and our stories and narratives with each other. We thank you for being a God close at hand and not far off. We thank you for utilizing our brothers and sisters to challenge us, to refine us, and ultimately at the end, in Philippians 2.13, it says to bring you great so, Father, that's what we want today, is to bring you great pleasure. We give this time forward to you in your precious name. Amen. Mm -hmm. So, I'm Gerald Skeeth. I'm a missionary pastor, lover of people. As Ben says, God has given us all one gift, or someone, some gifts. I, I have been given the gift of loving people, and God just utilized that to connect a lot of people um, across my path, and I've been able to meet a lot of people that way. I currently work for an organization called Firm Foundation. So when we were singing the hymn, it just really touched, or the song it really touched my spirit because we all start our relationship with Christ ideally with the Firm Foundation. So Firm Foundation and Christ Ministries, 
we reach highly sensitive profile in the 1040 window, majority they call MBBs, Muslim background believers. And so that's my current organization. We disciple, we train, we equip leaders, to equip leaders, locals, nationals in those areas to really have the locals that make a commitment to Christ start off on a firm foundation. So I just brought a little bit of our material. Um, you can add, like, in the back, you can see it or whatever. But it's a great um, <clears throat> opportunity for us to really establish a firm foundation in Christ. So that's what I currently do. I also have a couple other fun side hustles. Uh, we're in the coffee community. My wife and I own a, a coffee biz and uh, do a few other things. I'm very, very, very rookie learning guitar, but things of that nature. So that's kind of who I am. I have three beautiful children. One was, uh, one was made known to us that he was uh, part of our lives when we were missionaries in Nepal. Uh, we came back to the States and had him, and then the two to follow. Um, all just a really good blessing and gift. And then my wife has been gracious to be with me for the last 20 plus years uh, through our travels and adventures. Um, so, communitas. Actually taking community to the next level. 1 John 3.16 says this, right? By this we know our love that we lay down his life for our lives, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. <clears throat> no greater love than this is to lay down our life for our brothers and sisters. I recently heard a story about a friend in Africa who was an elderly woman, probably in her mid-50s, and she was discipling a young gal in her 20s. Now, we've seen like a huge spread worldwide of what we're referring to as COVID babies. And these could be babies out of wedlock. These could be babies out of uh, just recreation. This could be babies out of whatever situation. But there's a lot of babies being born and in different parts of the world for different reasons. This gal was unmarried. The young 20s gal was unmarried, getting ready to have a baby. And she was a believer. And in that context and culture, you don't take care of believing women. So those that follow Christ are completely outcast, moved to the side. And so this gal in her 50s said, hey, come on with me. I'll take care of you. You know, I know you need someone to help provide food. You need someone to, you know, do the basic things as, as pregnancy is challenging. And so come live with me. Well, the local authorities got wind of this and immediately in jail, put the, put the woman in jail of 50 years old. Well, this 20-something just lost her life source, right? Oh my goodness, where do I live? Where do I go? Where do I... <clears throat> and so she bangs on the door of the jail, you know, the, whatever, the precinct or whatever, and says, hey, let me in, let me in <clears throat> to speak with this gal to see if you will actually let her out because she's, not, she's done nothing wrong. Well, they said no. You know, in, in different parts of the world when you're in jail, it's like, whenever you come out, you come out. And they said, no, we're not letting you out at all. So this young gal was so distraught. She's thinking, what do I do? What do I do? She goes, put me in the cell next to her. <laughs> I, I laugh with my kids about this because I'm like, who would go to jail with Gerald? <laughs> like, no one. Not even my wife. I don't think you'd be like, see you, buddy. Like, this is it. Like, like you, did this, you did this to yourself. And, and I was laughing with my kids and then another buddy about this. And he was like, how long? I might make it a day with you. I might make it like overnight with you, but you're kind of like a weird guy. I don't want to hang out with you forever. They spent two months in jail together 
And I'm thinking, what other place in life could these women have paused and had a discipleship connection, had a deep, enriching time of life-on-life community together? Just a powerful story of both sacrifice on both ends of these women to spend some time together. So here's, here's what we see as we turn to Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. I'll just give you a little bit of background. There's a couple things going on in the, in the time and realm where this, is, this book's being written. Hebrews' whole entire theme is, is Jesus is the better than. Jesus is better than whatever we want to put I recently was listening to a podcast, and this gal was like, hey, I want my partner and Jesus. I want chocolate and Jesus, or whatever it is, right, that we put in. But Hebrews' whole thing is flushed out into Jesus is better than whatever we put in there. Well, in Hebrews 10, there's this tension going on, and it's really designed to divide and distract. The basis of the confident Christian, in fact, has access to the Holy Spirit and being able to connect with God. This was under scrutiny. They were arguing with each other on the theological realm of this. So there was was two things. One was the conflict of um, the relationship with God, doctrinal conflict going on, theology conflict going on, and then there was confident, or there was lack of confidence in the community. So let's read Hebrews 10, 19-25. I'm going to read it in the ESV, um, but go ahead and feel, to, feel free to, to read along in the <coughs> translation that you have. So Hebrews 10, 19, full assurance of our faith. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have great priests over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. So again, we're going to look at two things today. Really the posture and the practice. So we'll start with this how and why. The posture is the how, the why is the practice. There's four C words that really stuck out to me when I was reading through this passage. Confidence, curtain, conscience, and confession. So why? Why can we practice community? Why can we engage in one another's life? Because we have confidence, right? To enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. 
The word confidence is translated into all different parts of, of Hebrews. <clears throat> Hebrews 3, 6 says, But Christ is faithful over God's house and son, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So we have hope. <clears throat> Hebrews 4, 16 is that let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. And then 10.35, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which is your great reward. So we were talking through with our kids the other day, what does confidence look like? What does it look like in the Bible? And some stories immediately rang out, right? David and Goliath, great confidence. Wee little man, about my stature, Goes against a ten foot tall guy, has confidence in God that he will have victory, right? I was talking to this guy the other day that actually got to visit the actual uh, mock ark, wherever it is, Minnesota or something, I think they put the, the mock ark. But it took Noah 125 years to build that ark. I was like, I, ha I have not been that uh, engaged in something for that long. And actually, you know, couldn't see it through endurance. But that is confidence that we can have a relationship with God through what he did on the cross, Jesus Christ. There's a, a, a I love this story because my wife and I were missionaries in India for a little bit. And I think some of, some of you have been there. I think Ben's been there, maybe Matt as well. Um, but uh, we, we have the confidence that we can talk to God anywhere at any time, right? But they do not. Hinduism does not. Hindus do not. Every morning we would wake up to either bells being rung or <coughs> different uh, mechanisms or noises to wake up the gods. <laughs> please, oh please, hear our prayers, right? But we have the confidence through Jesus Christ that we can go before the throne at any time. Another example of, of having confidence in Christ was uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right? Mm -hmm. King Nebuchadnezzar's about just blood bursting in rage with these guys. And it's one of the, the key passages that I've been studying lately in Daniel is they so gently, oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, you know, that looks like a hot fire. It's probably going to hurt. But our God has the capacity to save us. And if not, Blake and I, we're going to be with him anyways. And so this kind of confidence that we have, or Peter jumping out of the boat. I think of all the other 11 disciples, and Peter's like, I'm going to go for it. I'll walk on water too. <clears throat> How freaky when he starts to go down, right? But he had the confidence at least to engage that relationship and step out of the boat. Out of the boat. So we have confidence and we have curtain. I love this, right? Because we were talking about it the other day with the kids too. Like only the holy, holy, only the perfect priest or the assigned priest could go in. And yet it was ripped. Done deal. All of us have that opportunity for relationship and exposure to the Father. And then conscience. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. 
We are looking at 1 Peter 3.17 with this. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And again, the purity of learning from my kids, right? I asked them, I was like, what happens when you do not feel you have a clear conscience? Well, Dad, I feel sad. I feel guilty. I feel ashamed. I feel embarrassed. I know for me, often when I have a, a guilty conscience or I even feel like I slightly did something wrong, I'm like, man, I really feel like I suck. Like I'm not as smart as that. You know, and I really have to lean into that we have an absolutely clean conscience before God because of Jesus. And then confession. Early on in my 20s, when I was working for a, another organization, I had this discussion with a young man who I was discipling and, and working with, and he's like, I think the forgiveness of our sins is for something yet to come. It's not for today. And I was really wrestling with, well, where is your hope? Where do you wake up every morning? Where do you get excited about living life if, in fact, our sins are forgiven? somewhere in the future. And so we have this complete confidence, as 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is for today. That is for now. That is that clean slate that we have before God the Father because as Ephesians says, not by works, not because of us, but because of Jesus. And this circles all the way around. These four things are so key. <clears throat> These four C words are so key to our posture. Right? Our confidence, the curtain, the conscience, confession leads to our identity. Our identity in Christ. First Peter, one of my favorites. First uh, uh, Peter says, "But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into marvelous lights." Because of these four seas, we can have a posture of absolute confidence, absolute clean conscience, absolute fresh relationship with Christ, brought us into a royal priesthood, a set-apart tribe for himself. We can have a humble posture because of that. I love Philippians 2, where Jesus uh, Paul's describing Jesus' relationship with God the Father. And <clears throat> Jesus knew that his relationship with God the Father here on earth was not something to be grasped. Right? And I think it's the same for us. When we are relaxed in our identity, when we are relaxed in the posture that we have before God, it opens up doors where we can pour out 
into community. So we have upward and outward, right? So that is the why from, from Hebrews 10 that I gathered. Um, now let's look into the how. My kids always tell me, Dad, you're so perfect. You've never sinned. You're such a great guy, blah, blah, blah. You're the, the, the perfect father I've ever had. <laughs> right? I mean, even Zoe's like, no, no. Dad, you need help. You, you, you're a broken man. And, and, and uh, I don't know, you ask my wife, there's probably 23 plus years of, of things that <laughs> we can discuss. We're probably still going <laughs> to work that out. But I love that we can look, work this out in community. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. This is the last few verses of Hebrews, the 24 and 25 there. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now these are beautiful times, at least in America. I think some of us would, would say that we're, we're less comfortable today than we were yesterday. Is the day drawing near? Who knows, right? <clears throat> but we do see some trends. And one of those trends is really concerning when we talk about community. And at the same time, it creates some creative ideas around community. One of the stats that I recently heard is of the 100% of the American church who gathered on Sunday two years ago, prior to the pandemic, only 60% of them will return to gathering in person. So 40%, potentially, up to 40%, of the American church will not sit in a room and talk about Christ again, moving forward. It's astounding. Shocking, right? If, in fact, we are designed for community, this is something that really compels us forward. I'm reading a book right now, I haven't quite finished it, but it's so good. Uh, Larry Osborne's book, Thriving in Babylon. He starts his chapter, Surrounded by Evil, by asking the question, how bad can it get? And I think a lot of us look at it. I don't know about you, but I get pandemic fatigue. How bad? How much more? How much longer? Can we see a little bit of break? Can we, can we, can we, because I'm a people person, right? Like, one person that was an introvert said, this is an introvert dream. I locked my door for two years. No, no, you know, don't have to go out. But me, I'm an extrovert. I love people. I have felt some prohibiting factors, right? And so, how bad can it get, he starts out. If you feel as if our culture is headed to hell in a handbasket, you're not alone. Most people have felt that way throughout history. Almost every generation looks back and wonders, what happened to the good old days? It's human nature. The evils of the past tend to fade from memory, while the injustices and evils of the present stand out in bold relief. Perhaps that's why Solomon wrote, do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. It's never been easy. Like, 
dot, 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 a little bit further along in this chapter, he says, it's never been easy to live a godly life. The pressures and challenges we face today may be daunting, but they're nothing new. And this, this last verse touched my heart because I just get to work with people around the globe. I hear it was rather tough in the first century. It's still incredibly dangerous in Iran, Saudi Arabia, China, and many other places. And I just have the joy of working around the globe. I see it, I hear it daily of tensions for our believing brothers and sisters who are making a conviction to stand on their faith, to stand together in unity. John Piper's Future Grace book also kind of puts a stamp on this. In fact, the way of life that comes from living by faith in future grace, so this idea of future grace is that we lean on past grace, present, present grace, for tomorrow's grace, for future grace. So what Jesus did on the cross, we can obviously witness, read about, hear about, see, observe through the, the teachings, but also we have present grace. I can't tell you how many times we have been saved from from either my stupidity or crazy decisions or things that have happened where we're like, oh, I even the other day I almost got a car wreck. And the car saw me and waved, and I was like, whew, God, that's your grace. That's your grace. It could easily have happened um, where I could have been set back. Um, but I think we, we, so we look at these past grace ideas for future grace tomorrow. So uh, that's the whole concept of this book. So in fact, the way of life that comes from living by faith and future grace tomorrow will very likely involve more suffering, not less. When you know that your future is in the hands of an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise God who promises to work all things for good, you are free to take any risk that love demands. And if we think about it, community is a risk. Community in, in, in every sort of way. And, and we have so many hot buttons in our day, right? Community to mask or unmask, and vaccine or not vaccine, or, or this tribe and that tribe and their tribe. And, ugh, divisions everywhere. So it's a risk that love demands no matter what the cost. It is a biblical truth that the more earnest we become about being the salt of the earth and the light of the world and the more devoted we become to reaching the unreached peoples of the world and exposing those works of darkness and loosening the bonds of sin and Satan, the more we will suffer. I don't know about you, but this gal in jail, how much more of a blessing was it to share those two nuns with a sister in Christ than it would have been by herself? That's community. That's communitas. That's life on life. This is the situation of our day, though. And we have to ask, how was it modeled? How was it first modeled? Way back. Well, the best that I can... Like, I look through life through stories, through creative uh, ideas, through methods, movies, video. Like, that's just who I am. I'm a creative guy. Um, my mom says I've never actually even colored in the lines. I've always colored outside. Uh, my name means colorful. It's who I am. So I think of life through different wonderful experiences. And so how this is modeled is in the Trinity. 
there's there's a book <clears throat> um, that I didn't actually quote in my notes, but I needed to. But uh, uh, the, the idea comes from a circle dance, and there's a, a twenty or a seventh century theologian, a Greek theologian named John Damascus, and he describes it as this: the relationship within the Trinity is a perichoresis, or a circle dance. Choros is a festive dance performed on occasions such as weddings or banquets. Adding peri as the prefix, meaning roundabout, emphasized the circularity of the dance. John pictured the one God, the one, the one God who is three persons in a dance of intimacy, equality, and unity. Always deferring in love and honor to one another. And uh, again, like when we were living in India, these wedding banquets would go on for days. Like for us, it's like 15 minutes and, and a little bit of reception, and then we're off on the, the greatest vacation that we've ever had or whatever, right? But for them, it's communities. It's days and days and days of party. And I love the idea that they're circling God the Father, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are circling and dancing in gleeful joy and sharing that love and sharing that equality and sharing that intimacy with one another. And I think this is modeled so often. Like I, we were talking the other day, my wife and I, and I was just like, you know what? There was times when Jesus was like, yeah, I'm sleeping, but Peter, you have a question? Go ahead and interrupt me. I was thinking about the time when Peter had the, the friction with the tax collectors, right? And he's like, you got to pay me that coin tomorrow. And it's late at night, and Peter's like, oh, I'm so stressed. I don't want to pay these guys. They're acting like jerks. Like, what do I do? And Jesus is sleeping, and he wakes him up. But then there's times when Jesus was like, Paul, i got to go up to the hills. I'm famished. And I need to find this oneness with my father. I need that connection with my father. And I think he missed that dance for the sake of us for a bit. And now, like, look, he's dancing for sure in heaven, right? But Jesus exposes this community on earth. It's so brilliant how Jesus took this dance, if you will, and exposed it here on earth. And Frank Viola wrote this book called Insurgents. And the first few chapters of this, he takes parables from the Bible and puts us in the, in the position of the, the narrative. So the first one that automatically comes to my mind is Jesus' first miracle. When he feels the, when he's been asked, right? Like, what do we do? What do we do? We're running out of wine. And he changes the water into wine. And Frank Viola refers to this. He's, to me, it's so captivating. He, referring to Jesus, this is a quote from Frank's book. He, referring to Jesus, transforms the water held in six stone jars into wine. But it's not your typical wine. Jesus creates the fine wine, the better than wine. Better than the original that they originally secured. Not only that, but the stone jars of new wine are equivalent to what? 180 gallons of wine. 900 bottles. What's going on? 
The Lord Jesus Christ has removed the shame. He's eliminated the disgrace. He's covered our sin and oversight, and he did it extravagantly. So not only was he just making great wine, but he saw far beyond it to the emotions of those that were hosting the wedding. When is this going to play out? How are they going to look to the community? How are they going to be able to overcome the stigma that they poorly planned the party or that they ran out or that there wasn't uh, enough? So he was able to restore that entire community with that one miracle. Another one that, that honestly really grabs my attention and gets me kind of emotional over it, really, is the bleeding women for 12 years. I mean, how many of us have experienced some type of illness or health issue or pain, right, but carried it for 12 years and been absolutely excommunicated from the community? Like, if I'm not feeling well, like, it might be an eh. But how about COVID? Two weeks, five days, whatever. We gotta lock them in the back door. Like there was one time we, we didn't know, and we I still might have been really sick a year ago. And the kids were like, Dad, don't come out. We'll feed you. It's okay. But imagine that posture for 12 years. And that, I can't. I, I just can't. Because I'm an extrovert, right? I love people. I couldn't imagine being like, oh, I gotta figure out how to do Uber Eats for 12 years, or i got to figure out how to get food and, and the necessities and never go outside for 12 years. And this is how Frank ends that story, and it's so great. <clears throat> Who touched me? You are horrified. Again, we're in the place of the woman here. Here you are, an unclean woman, touching a holy man, and thus rendering him unclean, right? Because... And that was culture. Leprosy, like we got to see a leprosy hospital, you didn't go near the lepers. Right? This is, if you were touched, we're unclean, they're unclean. It's a community reflection. But he keeps asking and pressuring, who touched me? And the pressure mounts. And finally you confess. It was me who touched you. To your surprise, Jesus doesn't rebuke you, nor does he crowd. Instead, he publicly commends your faith and he even calls you daughter. A word that's not been spoken to you since your illness. The crowd rejoices in applause. But again, here's how Jesus is practicing community. After 12 horrendous years, you can once again know the touch of a human. Jesus restored your life and removed your shame and pain. He touched you and made you whole, even while you were unclean. This gal can now shop. She can have people over. She can care for people and others can care for her. She can <clears throat> create an atmosphere of fullness in her community again. We see this again in Acts, right? So here's some practical things in Acts for us, because obviously 
<clears throat> we are probably not healing people every day or turning water into wine, though some of us would wish we could. It's not happening every day. But there's some things in Acts that we can actually do together to create a practice of community. Acts 2.42, and, and they devoted, speaking of disciples and Christians in that day, themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings. They are distributing the proceeds <clears throat> as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple, together breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being practical. Now I know, hey, we're living in a COVID world. People don't want to go over to kids' house. People don't want to break bread together. And this is where my kids are better church planners than I will ever be because they're creative still, right? They have the edge still. And about, I don't know, maybe a year ago now, I see one of the kids grabbing my fishing pole and flinging something over the fence. They're creating havoc. These, these, this other neighbors, we've had some tensions. My kids are up to mischief, right? Well, they weren't. They tied candy on the fishing line and were throwing it over the fence so that each house was safe from COVID, each house was safe from, from whatever like relational tension. And you can see the little, well, I think it's four or five, a little kid running around their yard looking for the candy. And so this may be a challenge in connecting with people. Or it may give us some creative opportunities. And I asked my kids, well, can we, we cause a mischief or whatever? And they're like, Dad, we're fishing for men. You trained us. I was like, oh, I trained you too well. <laughs> You're doing a great job. But... <clears throat> Uh, these fences that have been placed up in our culture only allow us some opportunity to create thinking when it comes to gathering community. Bonhoeffer wrote a book called Life Together. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. It's one of my favorite books um, about community. He, there's three quotes here that I want to share with you. Community is not something attained, but created through the mutual love and respect of members. I call it mutual submission, mutual love. When we truly lay down our lives for one another and have almost like a laying down life competition, we, <clears throat> the byproduct of that is love. Community. He goes on to say in that book, if my sinfulness appears to me to be in any other way smaller or less detestable in comparison with the sins of others, I'm still not recognizing my sinfulness at all. How can I possibly serve another person in unfeigned humility if I seriously regard his sinfulness 
as worse than my own. Again, the practice of it, right? If I look at my neighbor's sin as greater than my own, I'm probably not going to reach out. I'm probably not going to connect. We have neighbors of all sorts of different beliefs, all sorts of different backgrounds. And if I look like, oh, look at me, I've arrived, it definitely, definitely disconnects my desire to connect with them. But when I say I didn't say what are some commonalities that we can connect with? Little kids throwing candy over the fence with fishing poles. Whatever it takes, we can creatively <coughs> think through that. The last quote I wanted to share with you today is from Bonhoeffer. A Christian's fellowship lives... Oh, I'm sorry. A Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another, or it collapses. I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble he causes me, his face that hitherto may have been strange and intolerable to me is transformed into intercession into the countenance of a brother for whom Christ died, the face of a forgiven sinner. When we first moved to Portland, <clears throat> we lived in an apartment, and there was probably 60-70% Spanish-speaking Another mixed 10%, some were from North Africa, a couple of Islam, Muslim families. And uh, we would always pray on this one family because we had to walk to our car. So we'd come down the steps and we'd just say, okay, God, <clears throat> open the doors to communicating love to these people. We don't know how. They seem to speak <clears throat> Arabic or a different uh, language than we did, but our hearts are to connect with. We had, we had pretty much met all the other neighbors. Well, we prayed and prayed and prayed, and one day we were out in front, and all of a sudden I, I see one of my kids disappear. I'm like, where did they go? Well, the door had been opened to these people's apartment, and they had waved them in. And that led to this beautiful relationship of celebrating Ramadan. They would knock on our door, this sweet old man would knock on our door and give us these beautiful food, dinners, and whatever else, and then the next day we would give them the American food, and they'd be, oh, thank you, thank you, and for a couple of years, I think, this went on, and when we moved, they were like, just want to let you know through broken English, that we had been refugees in the U.S. for 15 years, and nobody reached out to us, you were the first, and so, what this quote about my Pray. It starts with pray. God, prayer. God, open my eyes. Open my heart to those around me who you might want to connect with. You. And out of that prayer, build some creative environments that community happens. There's a video that I wanted to share with you. It's one of my favorite um, about building community in a very rapid form. Um, so I think often our culture and, and our society says you have to be the leader. But we already know who's the leader, right? We already know what the, the mission is. We already know what we ought to be about. Go, make disciples. And so I've often prayed, God, allow me to be that first follower. 
allow me to follow you so closely. And you see, even as a, they're dancing, it's, it's obviously a stretch, but as they're dancing, they're trying to emulate each other. And Father, allow me to emulate you so much that that magnetic pull draws others to you, builds community around that. And as I mentioned, the, the, the reason behind all this, right, Earlier I mentioned this, but I'm going to close with it too. It's Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Our following him and creating community, both <coughs> upward and outward, gives him good pleasure. Mm -hmm. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are to do just that. To bring you good pleasure. We see the challenges all around us. We see the, the, the pains of those around us. It's visible and it's becoming more visible those who are distracted from you and the divisions that we hear about. Father, allow us to practice the posture of confidence, of confession, so that we can do the, the how. We can build community through humility. We just thank you for over and over and over exemplifying that through your son, Jesus. Thank you for the opportunity to serve you today. In your name, Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, sojournpdx.org.